Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Only one man has won as many as eight Stanley Cup championships without ever having played for the Montreal Canadiens. His name? Red Kelly. One of the greatest to ever lace up a pair of skates, Kelly was a part of four Stanley Cup winners with the Detroit Red Wings and four more with the Toronto Maple Leafs. His game compared with some of hockey's most legendary names, Orr, Bork, Robinson, Potvan, and yet, when we speak of the game's greatest blue liners, so few ever mention the name Red Kelly. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of Red Kelly. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes and today, Red Kelly. And I gotta tell you, I really feel fortunate to bring today's podcast to you because I was able to interview this living legend and share some of what he said with you. Red, as of this recording, is 91 years old. He's not in the greatest health, but he did spend some time with me over the phone. Unfortunately, though, some of what he said is very hard to understand, but some of what he said can be heard, especially if you listen closely. So what I have done is include some of his sound bites with an interview I did with Waxy Gregor, who co-wrote the book, the Red Kelly story with David Dupuy and Red Kelly. Waxy and I talked about Red for quite some time and covered his career in great detail. Of course, we weren't able to touch upon everything, but you will certainly be able to get a great flavor for the phenomenal career of Red Kelly by listening to today's podcast and what a career it was. 20 years split between the Red Wings, and the Maple Leafs. Eight Stanley Cup championships. He played defense and later center. For his career, he scored 281 goals and added 542 assists. And he won the Lady Bing four times. But I'll let Waxy and Red tell you more about this most amazing career. Before we get there, just a reminder that you can learn more about our guests by checking out Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web at sportsfh.com. There we have links to stories, stats, videos, and more about each of the forgotten heroes we talk about. You can send in questions, post comments, or you can suggest forgotten heroes you'd like to know more about. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes and check out our page on Facebook. Remember, we'd love to hear from you, and please, if you can, give us a five-star rating. Everything helps. 
You know, Red Kelly broke into the NHL with Detroit and played for 20 years, finally retiring at the age of 39. He shared the ice with the likes of Rocket Richard, Jean Beliveau, Gordie Howe, Ted Lindsay, Doug Harvey, Terry Sawchuck, and many, many of the game's larger-than-life legends. And as impressive as that is, perhaps even more impressive is the fact that not only was Red playing in the NHL, he was serving his country, Canada, in the House of Commons at the same time. And we'll get to that later on in today's podcast. Now, while we're here, a little from Red, let's start today's show with Waxy Rigor. Waxy, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks a lot for joining me. Well, you're quite welcome. Hey, so, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, why did you decide to write a book about Red Kelly and what did you find most fascinating about him? Well, the Red Kelly book, um, Red Kelly, given his age, mm-hmm. uh, had never had a book written uh, about him. And of course, uh, he had been approached many times before, uh, basically declined. It just happened that we were down at the stamp unveilings for the original six best defensemen, and we had completed the book on Pierre Pilat. And we met with Red and David Dupuy talked with Red and I talked with uh, Red's daughter, Casey, and uh, mentioned, I says, you know, would, you, would your father be interested in, in, in doing a book? And Casey told me that, yes, he may be interested. So he said, um, call him in a week or so, which we did. We called him and we called him a second time and we basically went to uh, Toronto and visited him with... Uh, once or twice, and I since found out later that he even called Pierre to uh, check up on us. Hmm. He he wasn't going to write a book just with anybody. I guess I I don't know. We're we're mm-hmm. not uh, we're not um, Pulitzer Prize winning writers. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, at his age, and I guess he felt you know what maybe maybe it's time to write a book. So um, we got into writing the book. We did a lot of phone conferences, a lot of interviews, a uh, lot of personal visits, mm-hmm. and um, and that's how we accumulated all our information. How much fun did you and David have writing with him? I mean, this must have been so much fun, especially for a hockey fan, to be able to spend so much time with, really, one of the game's legends. It, it is unbelievable, and... Uh, uh, you know, you're, you're talking, uh, you're not talking quite the locker room, but you're talking, you know, aspects of the locker room. And you're, you're talking to a man who is devoted and sincere to hockey. Mm-hmm. And it, it, is, it is unbelievable. Now, we met his family, of course. His, his, his uh, wife, Andrea, is just an outstanding lady. Uh, we've met the kids, and they're just, you know, really, um, you could tell um, by talking to Red, uh, what kind of person he was, mm-hmm. and he just loved talking hockey. Well, for those who don't know or don't remember a lot about Red, tell us just how good a hockey player he was. You know, he's he's here's the here's the key to Red. He always put team first, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter uh, what the circumstance was. The team came first. His ego was put aside. He had developed some skills early in his age, young age, 
that, that were brought forward. And he was very fortunate to have good coaches. And when you think back in the 50s, 40s and 50s, you know, coaching was at a premium. But he was fortunate enough to have good coaches. He had good pedigree. His father was a, a good hockey player. Red was always in great shape, better shape than any of the other guys when they came to training camp. A lot of guys came to training camp looking to get in shape. Red came to training camp. He was in shape. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. Uh, he learned techniques, but he was able to um, do things well. And he learned these along the way from um, Midget, Junior, St. Mike's. Mm-hmm. He learned how to pass the puck. Mm-hmm. He learned how to pass. He learned how to skate backwards properly. And what happened was when he was given instruction, he took it to the next limb and said, you go practice that. Well, Red would go practice that and practice that and practice that. Mm-hmm. He was he was devoted to the sport of hockey. Yeah, that came out pretty much in the beginning of uh, the book. But one theme that was throughout the book was just how important his farming was that his family owned a farm and we'll get into this a little bit later too but you mentioned that he was always in shape and a lot of that had to do with the fact that after each season he would go home back to the family farm work there over the off season then be in shape for the uh uh for for training camp correct oh absolutely when he describes what uh is involved in priming tobacco and, and then he has to take all the tobacco and, and climb the ladders and put them in the silos, and they had to be done in, that, in so many a day. And, and then, of course, there's all the other chores that go on the farming, you know, with your cattle and uh, uh, all that other stuff. He was in shape. It was unbelievable, like, uh, what kind of condition he was in. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. farm life, uh, which he still owns today, um, yeah, was a big part of his life and uh Man, it sure helped his hockey career. Mm-hmm. Sure did. Hey, one of the things I do on Sports Forgotten Heroes with several guests is word association. But I usually do it more towards the middle or end of each podcast. However, I wanted to do it up front in this podcast because some of the names that I'm going to um, bring up or in some of the terms or words that I'm going to uh shout out here, uh, play a a large role in some of the things that we'll be talking about later on. The first one I want to bring up is Stanton Burton. Who was he and why is he so important in the life of Red Kelly? Well, Stan Burton was uh, just a local kid that hung around the area, but uh, uh, they had a swamp that they used to play in uh, year round, whether it be swimming in the swamp hole or it'd be uh, skating on it in the winter. And it, it just so happens that uh, one time Red wasn't very old and he, he jumped into the swamp to cool off because it had been really hot out. And Red was going down for the count. Hmm. Uh, and it was Stan who jumped in the water and basically pulled him out, saved his life. Um, right. Red was, was only four, about four or five years old, I think, when that that's happened. That's all he was, yeah. That's all he was. But what happened was he got in the swamp and there was current there and the current was pulling him down. And Stan jumped in to see what was going on. And, uh, the swamp had some pretty steep, um, kind of hills 
that you had to go down and come out of and uh, was was Stan that saved his life. And then unfortunately, Stanton perished just a few short years later. Yes, he got killed in a car accident, and uh, uh, that really upset Red uh, uh, when he found out that, that that happened to him, you know. Mm-hmm. Who is William Conway? Well, William Conway is, uh, you know what? William Conway probably uh, saved Red's um, hockey career because um, Red was, uh, when Red went, first went to St. Mike's, and there's a story how he got there. But when 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 Red first went to St. Mike's, he went and tried out for the mid uh, for the major A team. He got cut. Tried out for the major B team. He got cut. He tried out for the midget team and got cut. Oh, so he went out and um, basically just grabbed the skates one day, and they're out scrimmaging. And and, and William Conway, who's basically a scholastic, was out there, a senior student, headed for priesthood. And he, this father Flanagan, he says, you know what? Um, you may have made a rash decision by cutting red. I think maybe you should take another look at him. And they did. And, and when they, when they took another look at red Kelly, uh, you know what? He says, um, yeah, he's going to be playing on a major team. Wow. So William Conway really might've salvaged the career of red Kelly before it ever got started. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Joe Primo. Joe Primo was a coach uh, that Red Kelly learned so much from uh, while he played with the um, St. Michael's Junior A team. Joe Primo was an outstanding coach. Um, Red has nothing but praise for him, uh, along with Father Flanagan. And Mm -hmm. that's why I say that, uh, you know, his, his coaches that he had locked into turned out to be uh, very important for his development. One name I want to bring up who plays such a large, perhaps biggest role of all, good and bad, in the Red Kelly story is Jack Adams. And it really did get off to a, a terrific start. Tell me a little bit about Jack Adams. I'm like you. There's a lot of there's some good and there's a lot of yeah, bad. But, but it anyway, started off really well. I mean, even to the point it did where start off very well. yeah, I mean, he even got him into to see the Detroit Tigers play the Cleveland Indians and Bob Feller matching or setting the the strikeout record in in Major League Baseball, and and Red got to see that before he was even on the Red Wings because of Jack Adams. So again, that, that, uh, yeah, that's yeah. Correct. That's correct. That really was um, shows you how much um, I'll say power that Jack had him or connections throughout uh, the Detroit area. But uh, absolutely. So, I mean, Red Kelly was never going to um, cause you a problem. And I'm sure that Jack Adams, because he had a lot of bird dogs out there, knew all that. And um, Red wasn't going to cause them any trouble in the dressing room, on the ice, etc. And Jack Adams uh, would treat him fairly well. Um, it was Jack Adams was very difficult to get uh, any money from. Um, now Red got his money in, in different ways by winning, uh, you know, pile of Stanley Cups, etc. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, Red had no beef with Jack Adams uh, until the day he got traded. Right. 
I'm going to get way, way ahead of myself because it's it's a fun story, and I really uh, uh, I just want to touch it briefly. Pyramid Power and Kate Smith. <laughs> well, we all know that the Philadelphia Flyers were started with the superstitions of Kate Smith because when she came to sing the anthem, they they went on their winning record and. Uh, you know what they say? Well, we got something good going here. We're not going to stop it. And you know, people started to buy into this stuff and figure, oh, geez, Kate, Kate Smith sings, uh, Philadelphia Flyers win and we lose. Well, what happened with um, in, in Red Kelly's case? You know, he he kind of thought of something. Well, you know what? Maybe I can counteract it. But his his daughter Casey had problems with headaches and migraines, and they had done some research on the boat, the, the pyramids to help absorb her of some of these headaches and everything else. So Red decided, well, you know what? I'm going to introduce some of these things uh, into the hockey room and see if it has an effect. And, of course, once the reporters got a hold of it, then they started to really play it up. (laughs) But while in the playoffs against the Philadelphia Flyers, he started with little pyramids, putting them under the benches. Well, it became a fact that uh, the Maple Leafs, were hanging right in there. I mean, uh, they were they were into Game Seven, um, and Red brought a great big pyramid into Philadelphia um, to help them win Game Seven, which we know that that didn't happen. But uh, that was the gimmick that he he brought forward just to to take the pressure off all the other things that were happening from the other side, just to take the pressure off, get the guys loose enough to play the game. Interesting. Okay. We painted a tiny bit of a picture of some of the people and things in Red's life. Now, let's go back to the beginning, at least somewhat at the beginning. In high school, he was a forward and scored a lot. But when he got to the Red Wings, he was moved to defense. Why? Well, actually, he started on defense in minor hockey in Port Dover. Mm -hmm. He was one of those kids that was... uh, better than other kids. And he, he started playing defense. His first coach, I guess, that kind of got him going was uh, Sidney McQueen. And Sidney McQueen, uh, really, even though you're Red Kelly and you're probably the best player in the team, uh, you're going to follow the orders that I hand out. And uh, Red got that message early in his career. When he went to St. Mike's, um, this is when uh, Father Flanagan put him on up front. Mm-hmm. They put him up front. He had, he had trouble uh, turning and um, skating backwards. So Father Flanagan put him through a series of exercises to get him turning on one side and skating backwards, but he had him playing up front. So he, he had experience playing back, but he was playing up front, and he played up front um, most of his career at St. Mike's before he got to Detroit. Now, he, he goes to Detroit, and he's automatically playing defense. Mm-hmm. Now he played four years the same life, but he's gone. He's gone to Detroit. He's he he did have um, Ed Sanford and him did play a little bit of defense for Joe Primo uh, at St. Mike's, mm-hmm. and, and it was Joe Primo that left him there. Ed Sanford Ed Sanford moved up, but uh, uh, Red stayed on defense. So he goes to Detroit, and he's playing defense. But but why why the move? to defense, what was it that um, 
Jack Adams saw in his game that said this guy's got to play defense and not be a forward? He improved so much uh, his, his backward skating from Joe Primo mm-hmm. that they could see that uh, his mobility, his able, he's able to, um, he had vision on the ice a little bit better than anybody else. He could carry the puck. Mm-hmm. He would move a pass up right on the guy's tape. Mm-hmm. He had all the qualities back there. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we know of Bobby Orr. Well, Red Kelly can move the puck up. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the strong points in Detroit. Defense didn't hang around with the puck in their end. They got it up and they got it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Red Kelly wasn't afraid to carry the puck. He was, he was defense first, but he was still an offensive defenseman. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout his career as a player in particular, dating all the way back to high school, Red really played on teams that only knew one thing, and that was how to win hockey games. So his high, it, during his high school career, the majors, he won a lot of games, didn't he? Well, when they, they won the major championship, they won the junior B championship. They lost the first Memorial Cup uh, in Major A uh, in the finals. But then again, the, the year after, they turned around and they won the Memorial Cup. So he was always in the thick of it. Uh, always winning. So his four years at uh, St. Mike's were very, very successful. Mm-hmm. Now we move on to Detroit, and and right out. And when he gets to Detroit, right out, right, right away, he makes the team on his first try in training camp. How big or unusual was it that a guy right out of high school makes the team like that? Very, very unusual. Very unusual. Matter of fact, sometimes you don't even get through training camp, and they're already sending you down. They've already got a place for you. They know you're going to Omaha or Edmonton <laughs> or wherever. And and in Red's case, it was they seen something. Uh, they 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 kept him as a fifth defenseman. Mm-hmm. And then his break came when one of his uh, buddies broke their leg mm-hmm. halfway through the year. Mm-hmm. Doug McQueen breaks his leg. Yeah, he had. Go ahead. Red's now in in this part of the top four. I was brought up as a fifth defenseman all the juniors. Just went to a Memorial Cup. First training camp I've gone to. And they took me to uh, Detroit the last minute. As a fifth defenseman, mm-hmm. and they used despairingly, uh, you know, uh, any big face-off came well, they'd change you and put out the uh, regular defenseman. And uh, but around Christmas time, the defenseman, one of the defensemen, broke his leg. Mm-hmm. Now they had to use me as the fourth defenseman. And they saw that I could do the job. Mm-hmm. And so they, I played, I played in, 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 in all kinds of situations. And, uh, and the next year, they gave me number four. And uh, I said I was happy with 20. I, <laughs> I wanted why they wanted to change it. They said one number was 
easier to carry than two. <laughs> I then had four for 19 years. So that was Red Kelly. As you could hear, his health isn't the greatest. And as I mentioned in the open of today's podcast, it was a thrill just to speak with him. What he was saying here is that he did break camp with the Red Wings on his first try as the team's fifth defenseman. Detroit assigned him the number 20, and after his first season, they gave Red the number four, which is the number he wore for the rest of his career. Red went on to explain how he became one of the team's top four defensemen because of an injury. Now, we'll hear more from Red later, but right now, back to Waxy and the fact that Red received a lot of praise right away. Bill Quackenbush said he could control the puck with his feet better than any player could with their stick. And Jack Adams said that Red was just about the best coached player he had ever seen. He made quite the early impression. Just how good was this guy as a first-year player? Well, he was He was obviously, uh, uh, we know where he finished in the Calder uh, Trophy voting. Uh, because he played defense, was he handicapped a little bit? Hard to say. Um, but this guy he, he was learning every day. And uh, to your point, he was so well coached through St. Mike's that when they got him, and of course Detroit didn't get a lot of guys from St. Mike's because Toronto had their nose in on all those places. Mm-hmm. But when they got him, they got a Polish player that was just going to learn a little bit more and become the all-star that he was. And, and, and there was more praise. King Clancy was impressed. Again, Jack Adams was impressed. Some thought, as you just said, that he might win the Calder Trophy, the Lady Bing Trophy, the Hart Trophy. I think Red Kelly was just one of those special talents who just had it. I don't know what it is, but some guys, they have it. A guy who stars right away is at the top of his game and continues to improve. Now, I'm not saying that he is a Bobby Orr or a Wayne Gretzky or a Mario Lemieux, but when you look back on his immediate contribution to his team and just how good he was, he's not that far off. So, how good was he, especially early on? Can you can you paint a picture for us of how quickly he acclimated to the NHL game and then exceeded the talents of so many around him? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, and the fact that he was such a strong team player, easily coached. I mean, Tommy Ivan had no problem with this guy, and he was learning. Um. His, his, his situations for his improvement was, um, you know, it happened so quick with this guy that he could adjust and adapt, you know, um, to point where he, you're absolutely right. How can you become a, a regular player in your first year, um, given the fact that there were so few jobs and so many good players out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember there was only there was only six teams back then. You had the Canadians, the Maple Leafs, the Rangers, the Bruins, the Blackhawks, and the Red Wings. That's it. You didn't have thirty-one or soon to be thirty-two teams playing in the NHL. This was the era of the original six, and this guy gets up there 
and he's kicking butt. Red Kelly was a was a tough guy. First of all, he was he was no pushover, even for a young kid. He wasn't he was a tough guy. He he learned his reputation, and and uh, they didn't call him Cornflakes Kelly for for a no known reason. Not only that, he was enthusiastic, and he never quit. Didn't matter what the score was. Never quit. Never left the ice service early. Um, he was a battler, and his whole objective was to win. The team wins. We win. What was he, um, especially early on? Let's talk about this. Was he more of a classic defensive defenseman? Was he an offensive defenseman? What were the strengths and/or weaknesses of his game? Well, I think that's that, that's the key. That he was an all-around defenseman. He he would do the the offensive stuff, but he knew when to stay home and take care of business. And he adjusted to uh, the different players' maneuvers. And there's a great story we talk about. When the Rocket Richard beat him once, he didn't. He didn't beat him again hmm. because he's. Yeah, I figured that move out. And and Red Kelly would would tap it into his brain. He he got to know all these guys' moves, um, and he just had a, a vision and a sense that uh, not everybody could adapt to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these qualities um, make him a, a really great player. Yet. He doesn't have the flamboyance of a big score. Um, you know, he's he's going to hit your your tapes, etc. But he's not going to be the, uh, you know, he didn't get the big goal of the seventh game of the Stanley mm-hmm. Cup, etc. Mm-hmm. I wonder it if takes uh, away from. No, go ahead. Take, it just takes away, um, you know, from the exuberance of some of the other guys they rate. Yeah, because. You know, you mentioned Rocket Richard, and everybody that's a hockey fan knows the name Rocket Richard. But and and Gordy Howe as well, and in many circles, Doug Harvey. Now, granted, these guys played back in the '40s, the '50s. But let me ask you this: Why do you think, outside of immediate hockey circles, Red Kelly is not as highly regarded or as well-remembered as he probably should be. What was it about his game that didn't spark the kind of memory of a Gordie Howe, a Rocket Richard, those kinds of players, and he was just as crucial to the success of his team as those guys were to their team? Absolutely. I think a lot had to do with the kind of coverage that was going on. We we know that Toronto and Montreal got – you know, coverage that places like Chicago and maybe Detroit newspapers covered red, but the rest of the hockey world wasn't seen it as much. Um, Detroit did have a, a bunch of other guys that they probably were focusing on, like the production line. So, you know, Gordie Howe and Ted Lindsay would have got a lot of the uh, cream. Mm-hmm. And there's no much, so much of the pie we're going to talk about. Um, and yet, red would be in the category of a Doug Harvey and Doug Harvey was raved about all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, why wasn't Red uh, given the same accolades? I think it's the way they were that the paper was covering these guys. You know, they might have thirty reporters in Toronto. They might have, uh, you know, four or five in Detroit. Mm. Interesting. Uh, so perhaps had Red come up with a Montreal or a Toronto instead of a Detroit, he might be a much better known and better remembered player. Uh, I would think so. 
Yet uh, Detroit had a very, very powerful team. And, um, of course, it started from the net out. Uh, there was a lot of good players in that team with a strong supporting cast. So, you know, it's it's easy to, when your team is doing so good, it's pretty easy to you know, overlook uh, a good play played by defensemen, yet it was occurring day in and day out. Yeah, and, and they weren't, they weren't awful, but they weren't nearly as good prior to Red joining them. And when he first joined them, how key was Red to their success? I mean, they finished the regular season in first place each of his first seven years. Seven straight years, they finished in first. That was a record up until that point. How key was Red to their success? Well, he was key in the fact that a lot of those guys were, were going together. Uh, was Gordy Howe was only had been there a year before. All these guys were maturing together, uh, coming from different areas that the Red Wings farm systems had. And it, it just seemed that, um, you know, all your draft picks are coming into fruition, and uh, here we go. Um, they were very well coached with Tommy Ivan. Um, they had a real strong system and a strong team. Now we know that Jack Adams tinkers with that from year into year out, mm-hmm. but, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they were the team in the early fifties. There was no doubt about it. Um, I mean, they lost here and there, but they were the most powerful team. And this to me is one of the most remarkable statistics about red Kelly. And I think this statistic goes to show you just how good or how key he was to the success of his teams. He played hockey in the NHL for 20 years, and only once did he miss the playoffs, and that was the 1958-59 season. And I think that was the year where he played with a broken ankle for most of the second half of the season. Heck, he won the Stanley Cup eight times, and that's a record for a player who never skated with the Montreal Canadiens. What was it about his game that not only made him such a success, but those around him as well? He made every player around him that much better, didn't he? What was it about his game? It was his attitude to the game. We play as a team. We play to win. He had the talent. And then when he went to Toronto, of course, he brought that experience. At that time, Toronto was bringing in a bunch of new guys as well. I mean, uh, the timing that he went to Toronto with his experience to bring those young guys into the system was just just perfect timing. And, and Toronto's, I mean, they brought him in Toronto for one reason. I mean, Punch him off knew what he was doing. But Red Kelly... Uh, um, in the years that they won in Detroit was just a, such a solid player back there that, uh, I mean, we talk about Terry Sautier being a great goalie. Well, they had defense keeping that puck away from him as well. Mm-hmm. They had a solid team effort. His, uh, his whole demeanor of um, never giving up, um, he was just, uh, his, his attitude was the team wins. We've got to do it for the team. We're going to win. And they did. They had some other great players on there. I mean, you just mentioned Terry Sawchuk. They had Ted Lindsay. They had Gordie Howe. Uh, some of the defensive partners he had. Um, 
who are some of the players on the Red Wings, and, and how good was that team? Well, that team was, was outstanding, and I, I recall talking to Red, and he said, you know, he says one of the, the best things we had going for us was we had a third line. Our third line could shut down. They went out there for one reason. They shut down the rocket. You know, they shut the rockets line down, but they had guys on their team like Alex Del Vecchio, um, Bob Goldham come over from Chicago when a trade. It was a good defenseman, mm-hmm. stay at home defenseman. And of course, mm-hmm. we had, we know we got uh, Ted Lindsay and Marty Pavlich was uh, one of those guys that could skate unbelievably fast. Uh, Marcel Pronable was playing defense. Uh, and then, and then uh, Jack Adams, of course, he moved guys in and out all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, when they had the production line, I mean, Sid Abel was there early on, and then Alex Del Vecchio came in. Um, they had a solid core of guys, as we know, uh, that, that kind of arises today where you have to have a solid core, and you work around that after uh, Detroit did that. And, I mean, they got rid of some good players. They had some good defense when they got the Jack Adams, started trading Jack Stewart and Leo Reese. He brought other guys in, but – you got to consider that Terry Sotchuk and um, Red Kelly, the production line, uh, I mean, they were a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. These, these are all all-stars. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Waxy, one of the things I, I really enjoyed about your book was you did. You learned a lot about the game, um, you know, season by season, how good the Red Wings were. And you covered a lot of the game. But what you also weaved in and out of the game was a lot about his personal life. And I want to get back to that for a moment because there were some things that were happening off the ice that certainly affected his performance on the ice. And one of them was the courtship with the woman he would ultimately marry, Andra McLaughlin, who was a skater. And he basically met her by accident, and their courtship took years. And it wasn't until Red broke his jaw that it finally became permanent. Well, I, I guess sort of. Tell us about his relationship with her. Didn't at one point Andra walk away from their engagement, tour the world, and then Red actually proposed to another woman before breaking off that engagement? And Andra's mother, she wasn't happy that Andra married Red. In fact, she had encouraged Andra to continue her skating career and not marry Red at all. Their wedding was somewhat secretive. Talk about the entire relationship there if you can. Well, you're absolutely right that uh, they had gone out. It was more of a, a male courtship than anything else by mail. When Red first uh, met Andra... Red was uh, asked by Gordy to go and meet Barbara Ann Scott, who was all rumors were that Gordy was involved with her, and uh, which wasn't true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when they got to the meeting, uh, and Andrew's mother was there, um, was Andrew and her mother, and I believe her brother, uh, Barbara Ann Scott wasn't even there. Hmm. And that's when the first look occurred. But there was some years of difference between uh, Andrew and Red at the time. And then I guess a few things occurred where Red met her a couple times when she was in skating and uh, asked her out for some 
calm date, etc. And as you say, the courtship just went on and off. She was on contract with Ice Review, uh, and I don't know if uh, she couldn't even get married because of this contract. She had to keep skating, whatever. Um, and her mother wanted Andrew to pursue her career in uh, ice skating, etc. But uh, Andrew had a feeling for Red, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a real, uh, you know, one of those mixed feelings. Red was such a um, patient and a docile man, and you're right, he went out with this lady, went out with his doctor's daughter, and... I don't know if he felt he he thought maybe he had to get married uh, because it was his age and time, but he knew it wasn't right, and he broke off that engagement. And it it was the fact that um, they they did become engaged. Andrew and Red did become engaged. But uh, because of Andrew's skating, she gave her ring back to her father to send back to Red. And she says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Europe and Africa and she went away for 14 months. Wow. Uh, and thought all along that, uh, the father had sent the ring back and said, the father knew that, um, Andrew really loved red. The father knew the mother was in agreement, but the, the father knew. Mm-hmm. And so when she came back from her, for to her tour, and she wasn't going back skating anymore. She said to review ice skating. She says, no, I'm not, I'm not going back anymore. And, and then she actually called Red up and asked, um, asked him. So she, 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 she sort yeah. of proposed to him at that point. Yeah. Is it, is it too late? And Red said, is it too late for what? <laughs> too late to get married. <laughs> and so, uh, boom, man, oh man, it happened in a hurry. And ironically, it was happening so early on, on the 4th of July that the arrangements had to be made so quickly that uh, Jack Adams actually gave her away at the wedding. And wow. nobody from Andrew's family was at the wedding. Um, because Red's parents were close by, they were able to attend. Um, so this really upset um, Andrew's mother. That but she did, she but, but Andrew, but Andrew didn't want her mother to know at that point either, did she? Well, she really didn't know because her mother was uh, totally, you know, but uh, in favor of it. But she was moving on. Her father knew. Her father didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the mother found out in the paper, mother was really upset. Mm-hmm. Really upset. And there was uh, there was a point in time where the mother and Andrew didn't talk mm. a whole lot un- until she was about to conceive her first child. And Red actually patched up the relationship. And ever since that time, uh, it's nothing been solid and positive. Mm-hmm. Now, dur- during the time of this, we'll call it a courtship, for the most part, it was it was good for Red. But there was a, a short period of time where I think it might have affected his on-ice performance. Is that true? I, I don't know if it did or not. Um, I know that the the year that um you know he was he was he was hurt a couple of times of course we know about the broken jaw and we know uh the last year before he got traded the broken ankle but the team was uh the team was suffering as a whole uh they had a lot of injuries and uh, believe it or not 
when I talk about Red as being as a team player, uh, he was asked to move up, um, play forward because mm-hmm. they knew he could, mm-hmm. uh, which he did. He said, uh, you know, whatever the team wants me to do, I'll do. So mm-hmm. he moved up and played up front. Mm-hmm. Now, it cost him some money because when it came time for the all-star voting, the reporters didn't know if he was playing up or back. Um, so they gave the nod to Bill Gatsby, which would basically cost Red a thousand dollars. When you look at it, because he said, but I'm, I do it for the team. Uh, if they want me to play up and play up. So the team wasn't doing very good. Now, of course, we know before tra- before Red got traded, there was all kinds of political activity going on with the team. Uh, Mr. Norris had passed away. Right. And I want to get into I want to I want to get into that in just a moment about the Norris okay, family. Yeah. First, I just yeah. want to I, I want to get to this one other point. I think Red was. He was really a homebody. He wasn't like a lot of the other professional athletes that once they get into whether it's hockey, baseball, football, basketball, and they get away from home and they're out on the road, their lives change a lot. But I don't think Red was that way. I mean, he was he was a real family man. And as we talked about early on, he returned to the family farm every off season. What kind of person is Red Kelly? Who is he? And to prove just how gentle he was, he also won the Lady Bing four times and was top five in voting on several other occasions. Who is Red Kelly? What kind of person is he? Red Kelly, uh, is first of all, uh, he has different beliefs. Family is probably number one. He's very strong in his faith. He's a Catholic. He's very strong in his faith. He is a um, strong patriot, very strong patriot. He's a, he's a team player to the team. And, and those are inbreded in him, right from his grandfather, his father, his mother, etc. And uh, Red never smoked, never drank. And as you know, you read the book, he never swore. Which um, is incredible. Swearing. I mean, when you're playing yeah, ice incredible. hockey and you never swear, that's amazing. Yep. I never swear, and I'm sure he heard it when he was coaching a lot of it in the locker room, but uh, that's the kind of man he was. He was uh, a sound person, um, and that's how he he gained his respect. I mean, when they went on the road to, you know, as you say, a lot of guys would be out fooling around everything else, not red. I mean, he might have got together with the team, and, you know, they had uh, Ted Lindsay started things up like, we're going to go bowling together, we're going to go bowling as a team. Mm Mm-hmm wives and girlfriends were were invited and uh there might have been some guys um you know having a few pops etc but uh, but not in red's case he, he lucky to have on a warm day in the summer after doing haying uh one beer mm. now he did enjoy dancing he mm. loved dancing mm-hmm. he loved dancing he loved singing mm-hmm. i was part of his irish background mm-hmm. um, but as you as you point out uh family and uh and that that goes to his mother and father and siblings, and to this day, they are still very strong. That's that's so cool. All right, back to the ice, back to the Norris family, and this is one of the very or this is one of the more interesting things that I found in your book that I had no idea. The NHL only had six teams, as as we talked about the original six, but. Ownership of those teams was very convoluted. 
And I had no idea about this. Like the the Norris family had its hands in like 50% of the league. Talk about that and how it worked, especially between Bruce Norris and Marguerite Norris after their father passed away. How does one family have its hands in the ownership of so many franchises? How did it work back then? Well, um, Mr. Norris, uh, the father, um, was a, a tycoon, had a lot of money. And um, he bought these these teams when they were on the downside of things, both Detroit and, and Chicago. And he, he invested in uh, Madison Square Gardens. And uh, so he, he had a lot of money invested, which made him a very powerful man. Um, when, he, when he passed away, of course... Um, Margaret was basically, a, I believe, a half-sister to, to Bruce Norris. And anyway, Margaret was given the, the Detroit franchise uh, where her other brother, um, dang, uh, Jim Norris, was given um, uh, Chicago Blackhawks. And now he was uh, more of a... He liked to set up fights and everything else and was known to hang around with some uh, really selective company where, uh, you know, uh, maybe from the underworld, etc., um, so he was, a kind of, I would say a conniver mm-hmm. and then, uh, as it turns out, Bruce, Bruce didn't have a very great reputation either. And unfortunately, um, Bruce kind of, um, squeezed Margaret out, um, was, right. you know, maybe one or two years after she had been the, maybe because she was a woman, they didn't think she could handle it, but Bruce had her squeezed out and the mother kind of supported that whole idea. Margaret became the vice president, but basically said zero. Um, and you know, Red really, really liked Margaret. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he thought the world of Margaret. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bruce came in and uh, he was known to have a, a pop or two. Um, and, and things started to change. Uh, things started to change. Uh, even though Jack Adams is still there, uh, Bruce started to throw some influence on, um, the franchise. And then one of those things that occurred was that uh, his brother needed help in Chicago. And I don't know if Jack Adams was ordered, but a lot of trades occurred with Chicago to support the Chicago Blackhawks because they weren't doing very good at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we know the story of what happens to players like Ted Lynch and everything else. And that was they ended up. They all ended up in Chicago, of course. Yeah. How, how does the league? Of, how does how does the league not step in and 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 do this? What prevented the Norris family from saying, "Well, I'm going to take all these good players and put them on this franchise and let this franchise be a little bit weaker"? How does how does the league, you know, well, I, manage I, this? I know that Clarence Campbell, uh, even though he was president of the NHL was really under the uh, directorship of uh, the owners. And we know that Conn Smythe is a strong uh, voice. Um, and, and Conn didn't really care as long as his team was doing good. Uh, Montreal had its own um, issues. But um, they just let it go, because I guess because of the financial uh, strength they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there were... I mean, Chicago wasn't doing too good. New York Rangers weren't doing very good. Uh, they seemed to be at the bottom all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I guess uh, maybe 
provide a little parity, yet it's not going to upset anybody because the teams aren't that good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about Jack? So how how'd they yeah. get away with it? How they get away with it? To your question, uh, is beyond me. Yeah, I mean, I would just think that the other owners would say, now, wait a minute, because there really was nothing stopping from the Norris family from stacking one team against, an, you know, and 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 leaving the other team barren so they could, I mean, the Norris family could have, if they wanted, they could have stacked one team, and that team could have really challenged the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs for superiority in hockey all those years, I sort of guess they did with the Red Wings that they had so much talent, but they could have made that team even stronger had they wanted to. Uh, they probably could have, but I think the older brother had just a little bit more uh, influence on his younger brother. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that was going to happen. Yeah, I just find that whole that whole thing really, really interesting. Hey, what about you know, Jack what? Adams? Certainly a great evaluator of talent, but and and as we talked about earlier, he wasn't a very patient man, and he certainly didn't like players who rocked the boat, no matter how good they were. Tell us a little more about Jack and the relationship he had with Red and how it ultimately soured. Well, Jack Adams had, uh, it happened to him in the 30s when, um, he, st- he stayed pat with his teams, and they, 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 they became affected by not winning again. So he came up with a philosophy that he is not staying pat with his team. So they might win the Stanley Cup, but he's moving some players after that year. And he did it in every year. And it got to the point where players knew it. They knew that, um, you know what, I could be, I could be the, the guy gone. Because he moved guys after every year, not a, not a question about that. And of course, we all know that um, when Ted Lindsay started the Players Association, but there were signs of that. And and Jack Adams takes the C off Ted Lindsay, hmm. and he and he went to Red Kelly and he says, "I want you to be the captain for a year." And uh, well, Red Red didn't want to be the captain, so I don't want to be the captain. I don't I don't want to. Um, offend Ted. Jack Adams was using uh, Red and other players to try to bring Ted Lindsay into line. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know eventually Ted Lindsay gets traded along with Glenn Hall. And Glenn Hall was another one that didn't uh, cow down to Jack Adams, uh, basically. And probably one of the reasons why he got traded, um, he more or less told him where to go. Hmm. Um, and then Gordy Howe became captain for a year or two. Uh, so Jack Adams was playing games, head games with the players. And then we all know that uh, Red Kelly, uh, not Red Kelly, but Ted Lindsay, when he first started up the union, uh, a lot of the teams were shifting all their players. Uh, the, the, the disturbers, I would say, like uh, Jimmy Thompson, those guys, they were all shipped to Toronto or to Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the only guy that didn't go was Doug Harvey because uh, – Frank Selkin said that they'll hang me in Montreal if I send him. He was... <laughs> so Jack Adams was, uh, and I think part of that came from the Norris family because Jack Adams was, was playing with the, uh, my understanding is that he, he played with the finances of the team. And uh, his take of his own pay may have came from the, the contracts where he signed and kept the players 
really down. I mean, Jack Adams was, it was known that he was very upset when the, as the, as the Detroit Red Wings kept winning, they had to match bonuses, and um, that took a lot of money out of uh, Detroit. So, <laughs> um, interesting. Jack Adams was, um, yeah, not afraid to uh, do the maneuvering and play games. I guess would you say? And yeah. When Red had an interview um, with a reporter, and and Red didn't think that. Uh, you know, it's going to hit the papers, and it did. Um, and, and Jack Adams was not very happy with uh, the fact that Red claimed that he had played in a broken ankle. And that hit the papers. And, and Jack Adams was known to have all the reporters in his back pocket, except for this reporter, who um, was from Toronto, and um, got the real story out of Red because the team had been playing so poorly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we know that shortly after, Red was on the trading block. Incredible that, that that you could trade someone so key to your team. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, you know, like we said earlier, Red played for 20 years. And over the course of 20 years, you're going to play in some very significant games. But one of them was particularly significant and it happened shortly after rocket Richard was suspended. Would you tell us about that game? What happened and the significance of that game? Well, in, in, uh, rocket had played in the Boston game and they got in a big brouhaha and rocket of course got suspended. And then it's not the first time he'd been in some kind of altercation, but it was known that he had struck the linesman. And Clarence Campbell had suspended him. So when um, they went into Detroit, went into Boston, and of course, both teams were fighting for first place. Um, they were pretty pretty close in the in the standings. And Boston, uh, I mean, should say that uh, Detroit had to win. Uh, they went into Montreal. Um, I believe it was uh, St. Patrick's Day. And um, Boston got up on an early lead. Four to one, and then all along, uh, Clarence Campbell was warned not to go to the game, but he had stubbornly insisted on going. And as it would have it, uh, Detroit got up early in the game, four to one, and then partway through the period, uh, you knew you knew that there was tension, and you knew that uh, something was going to happen. Then Mr. Campbell sat down with his girlfriend and. And Red tells me, he says, you know, you could, you could sense that there was something going on, uh, even though we're playing on the ice. And, uh, and then, then all hell broke loose. And that's when the tear gas flew. And they had to get to the dressing rooms. Uh, even had to put towels underneath the door because uh, the smoke from the tear gas was coming mm. into the doors. Uh, then they got a message from Frank Salkby that said that the game had been defaulted um, to Detroit. And to clear the building. And that was a key win for Detroit, right? That was a key win for Detroit, too. That was a key for win. Give him first place. And then um, get dressed and get back get back to the, in the bus. And we got to get out of here as soon as possible. And they even took a different room to get out of the bus because of the crowds. And uh, they had to get, uh, they had to find a different way to get to the train station to get out of Montreal. Uh, and they could hear the crowd rioting, etc. Um, wow! 
So it was a scary time. Sure. You know, I, I think it might be hard to say that any one season was his best, but the 1953-54 season really, you know, stuck out to me. It certainly has got to rank up there as one of Red's best seasons. Can you talk about 53-54 and just how good Red was that year? He won the Norris, the Lady Bing. He was second in the Hart Trophy. Uh, could have been his best year ever. Absolutely. Um, not only that, he was he was up for the running and the most valuable player. Um, right, the heart. He, yeah, I believe he finished second. But he was playing like um, almost 45 minutes every game. And he was playing against the best players, etc. He was at the peak of his career. There's a, there's probably no doubt in my mind that was his best season ever as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Everything just, just gelled, you know, and he was, he was healthy. Um, I, I don't know what else you can say that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. everything, everything just went for him. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about, know, um, let, let, let's talk about that ankle that we talked about earlier. He broke that ankle during the 58-59 season. And after the season ended, he and Andrew got back together and married. Shortly thereafter, she got pregnant. It was a whirlwind. Interestingly, though, there was a whole lot more to that broken ankle. It was never reported to the press, as you said. And during the 59-60 season, the story finally broke from the reporter, whom you said Jack Adams didn't have in his back pocket, And Adams was none too pleased, and Red Kelly was stunningly traded to the New York Rangers. But he didn't go. Instead, he retired. Talk about that whole episode and how Clarence Campbell intervened, got Red back into hockey, and then what eventually happened. Well, when Red got interviewed by Trent Fain, the story came out that uh, he played with a broken ankle. As a matter of fact, I think he only sat out three or four games, and he had that broken ankle basically the whole year. Um, and when when um, Red uh, Jack Adams called Red to his office and informed them, and apparently Bruce Norris was standing there watching this stuff and basically said, we're trading you to New York. And it was at that point in time uh, that Red said, I'll think about it. And that's when Jack Adams kind of looked him in the <laughs> face and shoved his finger and said, you'll think about it. You'll be there tomorrow morning at 8.30. You know, I'll think about it. And Red got up, turned out, walked out of the office, slammed the door, and left. And then he got home and he said, boy, what am I going to do? Um, but he did call he called Muzz, he called Muzz Patrick the next day and said, "Sorry, Mister Patrick, but uh, I'm not going to New York. I'm retiring." So at that time, he didn't get the call from um, a few days later from Clarence Campbell. Basically, Clarence Campbell was kind of threatening him, saying, "If you don't return to New York, you'll be blackballed." And uh, he basically said, "I'm not reporting to New York. You can do whatever you want. Um, I'm retiring." 
there. And that was basically, um, that's when Toronto got on the phone. Toronto worked a deal though with Clarence Campbell mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. avoid those. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and Jack Adams got a player, a player in return. Um, but basically, uh, Clarence Campbell didn't do, uh, Red Kelly any favors. Um, but he did, he did smooth it out eventually. So, uh, Jack Adams got something in return and, and Red, Red was off to, um, uh, Toronto. Um, of course, uh, Eddie Shack was not too happy because he was a guy that was going to Detroit from New York. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Red actually retired from the game. He didn't want to go to New York. And in this next piece with Red, if you listen closely, he talks about how he was told that he would be blackballed from the game. It didn't matter to him. However, King Clancy got involved and worked out a deal to send Red from Detroit to Toronto. And Red was back at it. Only now, he was going to play center for the team he grew up watching. Well, for 10 days, I'd given up hockey for mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terrence Campbell called me and said, Red, I want you to think about it. He said, if, if uh, you don't report, Adams wants to suspend you. If he suspends you, you can never be able to play hockey. If he had a telegram, you'll never be able to referee, you'll never be able to coach, you'll never be able to be a stick wow. boy. Wow, wow. Uh, so I want you to think about it. And I told him I thought about it all night. Went to church in the morning, and, and uh, before I... Called Buzz Patrick to Cleveland and told him that I wasn't reporting, I was retiring, had nothing to do with New York. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't reporting. What? So, uh, I, I, I played hockey all my life, and now in, in, overnight I gave it up. Wow. And, uh, so, when Clancy called, it was like the sun started to shine again. Wow. When you got to Toronto, did they change your position from defense to forward? Did you become a winger or a center? I, I became a center. How tough was that to change? And I guess really... Why did they make you a center? Well, <laughs> playing hockey was playing hockey. Didn't matter where you played, and uh, uh, so I had no trouble playing center. Uh, I just continued to play mm-hmm. the way I played defense, and, uh, and so I had no trouble stepping in there. And, if I said if I made a mistake, because I haven't been on skates for about 10 days, there'd be a defenseman behind me to cover up. Mm-hmm. There was no, no problem whatsoever moving into center. Meanwhile, back in Detroit, the trade of Red Kelly was devastating. With Kelly in the lineup, the Red Wings won four Stanley Cups, 1950, 52, 54, and 55. 
After Jack Adams sent Red packing, it was like a curse. Adams did wrong by Red, and it wouldn't be until 1997 until Detroit would once again sip from Lord Stanley's Cup. Well, it's another part of the the, the, the demise of the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, the dynasty is now folding, unfolding. I mean, there's there's hardly anybody left that uh, that was there. I mean, Ted Lindsay's gone. Uh, Sawchuck's getting older. Um, Gordy Howe basically left his, on his own. Um, defense is getting older. Um, Red Kelly leaves, and Detroit doesn't win another Stanley Cup until 2000 and whatever. You mean 19, 19, uh, 1997, I think it was. 1997. That tells you a lot that when he left, I mean, um, I mean, they lost a big chunk of their D. I mean, they may have been losing some games, et cetera, but, um, and I don't know how the Detroit Red Wings felt, but I'm sure they couldn't have been happy. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole franchise was swung, swung around with, uh, the intervention of Bruce Norris and, 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 and some of the uh, moves that Jack Adams is pulling off. Do you, of course, think, lost do you think Jack Adams ever regretted trading Red? It's hard to say. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if Jack Adams, um, he may have, may have in his own way, but he, you know, he had the reporters in his back pocket. He could turn a twist on it any which way he, you know, he thought. He may have even spread the word that Red was a, cancer in the room, et cetera. I, I don't know about that. Um, gave Andrew away just not too long ago. And uh, all of a sudden, um, all this whole event occurs. Um, yeah, that's the amazing thing about it is just a couple of months earlier, he, he does, he gives Andrew away to red at their wedding. And then a couple months later, their entire relationship, that of Jack Adams and Red Kelly, goes down the toilet. It's it's permanently wrecked. I don't think probably to this day, well, Jack's been gone for a while now, but I don't think they ever spoke again. They did not. Red Kelly never spoke to Jack Adams again. Uh, you know, Red Kelly was upset the fact that he had given all those years to Detroit. Not that he was looking for a pat in the back, but he was a team player and he gave everything he had to Detroit. And, you know, they insisted on him playing with a sore ankle or a broken ankle. Uh, and he did what they asked him to do. And then, um, because this comes out in the paper, Jack Adams says, I'll, I'll show you. And, um, he's going to trade him. And what a coup for the Maple Leafs. I mean, Red's years with the Leafs were some of the most dominant the Leafs ever had. In fact, he won four of his eight Stanley Cups with them, including three straight, 62, 63, and 64. Tell us a little bit about those teams. Who were the key players and just how important Red was to those teams? They had a few guys uh, in the lineup that had been there for, for a little bit. Uh, you know, Johnny was coming in from the AHL and then George Armstrong was there, but they had, they had a real young team. Um, and red comes in. And, um, the smart thing was, um, punch him has a great discussion with red. Uh, Dave Keon is just a rookie in 61. Um, the Reds experience, he's coming in and 
he signed, said, we, we got you in here, Red, and there's what we want you to do. We've got to stop the Montreal Canadiens. They're the team. And we want you to play center. And we want to, we're going to put you up against Bellevue because we need to isolate Bellevue because bunch of him lots of experience knew when coaching him with the Quebec Aces how, how uh, good a player he was. And that was Red's job. And of course, we know how well that was carried out. Yeah, they moved Red to forward, part. right? He didn't play defense with the Leafs. He became a no, forward. he didn't play defense. He's playing forward. And, and, uh, and Frankie Mahovlich was the beneficiary of that. He was. He was. He was uh, uh, the one year that Frank Mahovlich gets 48 goals, and it just happens that he's on his way to 50, and Red gets hurt. And, and Red doesn't reach that, that mark with a few games left. Uh, you mean Frank doesn't hurt. reach that mark? Yeah, he doesn't reach that mark, and he may have if Red would have, you know, played out the rest of the year, but mm-hmm. he had been hurt. But, uh, but you know, they had the young players coming in. They had uh, now Alan Stanley come over from New York, so he wasn't a young player. But Tim Horton and Carl Brewer and Bob Bond, mm-hmm. um, Devin and Keon, there they were young guys. Billy Harris. Uh, I mean, they had a couple of older fellows that were kind of a supporting cast, but not. They weren't the, the main guys. Um, so his influence was in the dressing room, him and Johnny Bauer, um, you know, and uh, George Armstrong. There was a there was a bit of a turmoil in the dressing room at times because Punch Imlock was, uh, didn't take any crap. But, you know, Red Kelly always got along with Punch Imlock and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until later years, more so the 67, the 66, or the few of the young guys coming in that really didn't get along with uh, Punch Imlock because of his, his ways of doing things. But uh, if that different bothered Red. Red would just, I'm here for the team. Team wants me to do that. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it worked out. Yeah, it sure did. You know, Waxy, one of the things I got to ask, I can't imagine this happening today. One of the more amazing accomplishments about Red's time with the Leafs was the fact that he served Parliament while playing in the NHL. I mean, I can't even fathom a player today being elected to a major political office in his country's, uh, uh, you know, government. Talk about that a little. How the heck was he able to do that? Please explain what election he won, what his responsibilities were, and how hard it was to juggle being a hockey player, a successful hockey player at that, and spending time in the House of Commons. I mean, it's crazy to think that he was able to pull this off. You asked me earlier... um what I found uh, maybe uh, outstanding and unique about Red Kelly, mm-hmm. and this is and this is it. When he was approached by uh, Keith Davies to run, uh, he said, well, I, I, you know, "I can't run. I'm still playing hockey, etc." And um, Red met uh, Lester Pearson and was was very impressed with meeting Mister Pearson. And of course, Red never makes a decision. Uh, sporadically, 
Red will always tell you, uh, I'll have to get back to you. And he has to think about it. Now, not only was he going to run for politics, he was also married with young children, very young children. So now we got an NHL player that's going to run for politics, and he's got a very young family. And you ask yourself today, who the hang could ever pull that off without getting, you know, hung by your better, better your partner or whatever? <laughs> yeah. And when he ran, uh, he ran against a strong um, a person uh, in the York West region who had been the incumbent, and he narrowly beats him out. And the fellow's name was John Hamilton. And uh, the key to Red was he would never miss a meeting in Ottawa. Uh, he didn't miss hockey, but he would never miss a meeting in Ottawa because he said, if I miss meetings in Ottawa, there'll be nothing but people sitting there talking about it. And, and that's the thing that, 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 that's the craziest part to this whole story is he wakes up in Toronto, practices, flies to Ottawa, takes in a meeting, gets on a plane, flies back to Toronto, plays in a game, and then the next day he repeats it. It's crazy. It's crazy, and uh, he, he, Andrew found out that trying to figure out when he was eating. So she eventually had to make him sandwiches to take with him because he didn't think he was eating properly. Um, and he'd always take the, the last ride home after Parliament. Um, it, it is unbelievable. Now, this, the second time he ran, uh, he ran again. And, of course, he ran against Al Eagleson. Well, I'll tell you, Red was pumped up for that one because he had no use for Alan Eagleson. Alan Eagleson was saying some pretty, uh, you know, devastating things in mm -hmm. the direction, and Alan Eagleson threatened, ah, you know what, I'll, I'll, um, I'm going to smoke you when it comes to the election. And, of course, we know that didn't happen. And I'll tell you, Red was, um, in, in his own way, it was like a hockey game. You know, we won, you lost. Right. Um, Red, Red was that uh, fierce a competitor. Um, and that's not the, the last uh, time he has a bit of a run-in with Mr. Eagleson. Um, but anyway, after his second term, he finally said, I have to retire. And he, he had uh, three young children, um, but never missed, never missed uh, Parliament and never missed a hockey team. And he was successful was one, on the ice. He was successful on the ice at that time, too. It's crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh was one great uh, story he told me at the time that they had to go to Montreal. And it was they always played in Montreal on a Thursday night. And uh, he got on a train, and he was really upset because on the way back home after the game, he just barely made the game. And on the way back home after the game, um, they got, the train got held up because of the FLQ. They were threatening to bomb the, the, the train. And so he didn't get into 5 o'clock in the morning and had to a, had a be in Parliament a couple hours later, which mm -hmm. Red wasn't very happy about. Mm -hmm. Well, it was, it was a tough goal. Uh, uh, the games were always on Wednesday night, uh, Saturday night, Sunday night. The odd game on a Thursday night in Montreal wasn't very odd every. So uh, the House Parliament didn't close on Friday at 6 o'clock, didn't open till 2 o'clock on Monday. 
so I was able to make all those games and practices as many as I could to practice. Practice sometimes by myself in Ottawa. Uh, and uh, it was uh, the only one time there was a game in Montreal on a Thursday night and Parliament closed on, 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 on Wednesday at 6 o'clock and, and then opened till at 2 o'clock the next day. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, this was a Thursday and the alarm bells went off. We were minority government. And so uh, there were votes. The votes started at noon. The bells started to ring. And they rang till six o'clock that night, oh. and we had votes, and the votes, and then the, the assistant speaker of the house had his car chauffeur waiting outside the door, and I ran out, got in there, and rushed it to the airport, and and flew to Montreal, and got a had a coach and drove me right to the forum, and I got to the forum just as the team was going on the ice. It warm up, and so I was able to get dressed in time for the game. And uh, I didn't have any heat or anything. And uh, after the game, the team went back to Toronto, and I got the railway train to Ottawa. And uh, the FL2 had threatened to blow up the bridges and wow. drove me. They, they wouldn't let the trains go through until, until they trekked, checked all the trestles. And so I didn't get into Ottawa until about 5 in the morning. But I was rooming with Eugene Whalen and Larry Fennell. And uh, they were just getting up when I was just getting in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're talking about a guy who made his NHL debut in 1947-1948, the 1947-48 season. And he was a member of the last Maple Leafs team to win a Stanley Cup. The Leafs won in 1967. Been a long time for Maple Leaf fans. He scored 14 goals and added 24 assists that year. And in the playoffs, he had five assists. Again, they won the Stanley Cup. He was still a good player at the age of 39. Talk about his final years and why he finally decided to hang up his skates. Well, he he wanted to get he wanted to get that milestone in. Twenty years is uh, was a pretty good thing. Matter of fact, what people don't recognize that he was offered a contract to stay with Toronto uh, following the '67 year, but he said no. Uh, I've I've had enough. Uh, young family growing up and. Uh, Playing days, he, he knew that uh, you know what. It's, um, I think he could have still played because of his expansion. Yeah, that's when the told, NHL expanded to twelve teams. That's correct. And you know, he, the over the hill of the gang. Uh, he talked about the over the hill of the gang and how those how those guys uh, at their age pulled it off. Um, and he was tired. He was sore. Matter of fact, he had hurt his leg. Uh, severely in that playoffs, but um, that's when he decided, you know what, uh, it's time for me to hang it up. 
And of course, he didn't stay away from the game for very long. After he retired, he took on the role of coach of the expansion Los Angeles Kings. Now, the NHL was set up a little different back then. They took the original six, kept them in one conference, and took the new six teams and put them in the other conference. So the expansion teams were guaranteed playoffs, and they were guaranteed that a team would make the Stanley Cup Finals. The Kings made it to the playoffs that year, and they took the Minnesota North Stars to a Game 7 before finally succumbing. How disappointing was that for Red? I, th- I think it was kind of disappointing because they went into Game 7 and he had uh, Terry Stotchuk on his team. I mean, his, his goaltending uh, partner, uh, Rutherford, had been playing pretty well, but Terry uh, Red figured from uh, previous history that, you know, he's going to be a money goalie. Uh, I'm going to put him in Game 7. And unfortunately, they lost, and it was very upsetting to Red. Um, first coaching career, uh, first coaching year, and they, they lost that game. So he was he was somewhat upset, um, and he was disappointed, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Yuki didn't bail him out. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got over it. Sure did, and he coached the Kings for two years. Then he went on to Pittsburgh for three-plus years where he coached the Penguins. He was let go midway through the 72-73 season. It must have been so weird for Red Kelly to not be on the ice. After all, he had just spent 25-plus consecutive seasons in the NHL as a player and then a coach, how tough a pill was it for Red to swallow to be let go by the Penguins? It was. It was. I would say it was devastating, and 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 part of the uh, whole time in Pittsburgh is, you know, he started coaching and then he became a general manager, and he he regrets the decision uh, of taking on that general manager's role because he felt that there's no way that you can do both uh, properly. And at the same time, there was a political uproar in, in Pittsburgh. There was um, new ownership taking over, and uh, it got along with the previous uh, owners, etc. But a new, new squad came in, and then when he was fired halfway through, it was devastating to both him and the family. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. He wasn't gone for long, though. The following season, he was back behind the bench, only this time it was for the team he finished his career with, his beloved Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, how exciting was that? <laughs> and how he got hired um, to coach the Leafs. I mean, um it was, one of, uh, it was one of um, Harold Ballard's uh, reporters that actually called him, and Harold Ballard was in Mailhaven. And the reporter called him up, and uh, it was Dick Beddoes, and said, uh, started talking and kicking around, and uh, would you be interested in uh, coaching the Maple Leafs? And... Uh, yeah, I'd be interested, and so that's that's when it first uh, 
um, broke that uh, he was interested. And, uh, of course, he got offered the job from Harold Ballard, who was in jail. Regarding Harold Ballard hiring Red Kelly as coach of the Leafs from a jail cell, it's true. Ballard was actually sentenced to prison in 1972 for the misappropriation of funds intended for the use of Maple Leaf Gardens. He was sentenced to nine years but only served one year and remained the owner of the team until 1990 when he passed away at the age of 86. As for the coaching career of Red Kelly, he coached the Los Angeles Kings, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and his beloved Toronto Maple Leafs. His overall record was 278 wins, 330 losses, and 134 ties. But for the Leafs, he was over 500, winning 133 games, losing 123, and he had 62 ties. Now, of course, he did have some success with the Leafs, especially those playoff series that we talked about way back early on, uh, the, 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 the pyramid power. Um, they played the Flyers in those exciting Stanley Cup playoffs. But after four years with Toronto, Red Kelly was finally out of the game. How difficult was it? How tough was it for Red when training camp rolled around in the fall of 1977 and Red, for the first time in 30 years, didn't have a training camp to attend. It must have been one of the oddest feelings he had ever experienced in his life. I would I would use that term too, oddest experience, but I don't think he had a regret because Red didn't look back and, and Red had a game plan uh, going forward. He had already been involved with some experimental uh, ideas of what he's going to do following his career. Um, I don't think he re- really regretted it. Um, he just had to get on with his new way of uh, living, and uh, he got involved with the family business. Um, his father-in-law had a business in the United States, and Red started his own um, maintenance system business um, on aircrafts. And they started working out of the um, uh, Pearson International Airport here in Toronto. And he, he didn't really look back. And I think um, as far as it would help him get back to his uh, family, a little bit closer to his family than, than he had been. So uh, Red was never one to look back. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he moved forward. And, uh, of course, as his career goes on, he... He, he's uh, as good at business as he was uh, in his hockey career. Yeah, well, you, know. you, would, you, would, you would think so. In the end, when we think of the game's greatest defenseman, at least on the periphery, most think about Bobby Orr, Doug Harvey, Ray Bork, Larry Robinson, even Dennis Potvin, Tim Horton. But not many would say Red Kelly, even though he should be at the top of the list. Why? Why, with all of the accolades, the Stanley Cups, the marks he set, is he not mentioned in the same breath as those guys? He was every bit as good. Yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. And I, 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 I don't know if it's because he had to be. Uh, uh, we know how Bobby Orr's. Um, scoring prowess and he changed the whole game the way he played 
uh, I mean, Red wasn't allowed to do that. He had to play under a system. Mm-hmm. But, but he was such a steady defenseman that um, he didn't receive all those big, big accolades that uh, some of them received. And I again, I go back to the, the kind of coverage he received. There was mm-hmm. no TV when he first started in um, in the early 50s. Mm-hmm. You, you were listening to radio, which is a little different than picking up a, a game on TV. Having said that, with his uh, all the stuff he's done, um, you know, it's just this year that he's going to have his sweater retired in, in, in Detroit. And we asked the question, you know, what took them so long? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted Lindsay had a, a ruffle with Detroit, and yet he came back, got his sweater retired. Terry Sotzak, he leaves, he goes to Toronto, comes back, he gets his sweater retired. And, and we've always asked the question, what took them so long to bring Red Kelly into retiring his sweater? Who, who stopped that um, yeah. process? Because this man, um, if, if you talk about the Detroit Red, Red Wings in itself, um, all those Stanley Cups and those championships they won in the, in the 50s, uh, I don't think they win them without Red Kelly. Well, after reading your book and looking at the stats and doing some research, I don't think that's a far-fetched conclusion. They might have won a Stanley Cup, but they would never have been as dominant without Red Kelly. I mean, they were not a first-place team. And then he comes along, and his first seven years, they finish in first every year. I mean, he was was that good. they praise uh, Nicholas Lidstrom, and I, I would never take anything away from Nicholas Lidstrom in Detroit uh, because all the moves he made on the ice were, were very few faults could be uh, tailored to Nicholas Lidstrom. But Red Kelly um, was had the same impact. Uh, he played in the power play. He penalty killed. And the other thing that people don't recognize is, is Red Kelly only had two or three fights throughout his NHL career. Why so? Well, uh, nobody was really willing to tangle with him. So this guy was, uh, <laughs> you know, a tough enough defenseman that you're not just going to coast around him without, uh, you know, getting a little visit from him. Sure. Um, I mean, this 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 man had uh, all the skills, and then you're right. Uh, uh, I don't know why he hasn't received. I, I don't think it's because of his, uh, I think his ego and his, it's always been team first. He's he's not one to, you know, boast about his accomplishments. He does like to talk about the fact that he won eight Stanley Cups. Mm-hmm. And again, it falls on that it's a team game. And right. His team won. Waxy, there is so much more in your book, The Red Kelly Story, and we just can't touch on everything. It's impossible. We'd be here for hours. I mean, we can't talk about his children, <laughs> the the how Casey got her name. Punch Imlock, Harold Ballard, the great series between the Leafs and the Flyers, so much more. And I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of the book, The Red Kelly Story. You will learn so much and you'll be left scratching your head as to why this guy, Red Kelly, is not more revered. Where can fans get a copy of The Red Kelly Story? Uh, Right now, I believe... um uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, we had copies, but we're kind of out of them. Red Kelly has some copies left. If you ever got a whole Red Kelly, mm-hmm. and uh, any any books we had, we always made sure they were signed. 
That's awesome. Uh, Red, Kelly, Red Kelly signed them all. We would bring, when we, we got books, uh, we'd bring all our books down to Red Kelly. We'd travel to Toronto, and then we'd sit there and sign 200 books. And anybody who bought a book from us always got a signed copy from Red Kelly. Uh, he's just that kind of guy. Never refused an autograph. His autograph is very legible. Um, and that's the kind of guy he is. Cool. Never refused anybody. Very cool. Hey, what are you working on now? I am working right now with a guy by the name of Brian Trottier. <laughs> uh, Brian is uh, uh, um, finally finally uh, convinced uh, to write his own story. He wants to write it, yet we've already done uh, 36 interviews, uh, wow. which are about, about an hour long in each interview. And um, now we're just transcribing all the interviews and uh, putting it together. So... Hopefully we'll have it out sometime next year. Um, this is another guy that's um, extraordinary. Awesome. Well, Waxy, thanks again. Thank you. I released this podcast on January 22nd, 2019. On February 1st, 2019, the number four, the sweater that Red Kelly wore for the Detroit Red Wings, scheduled to go up to the rafters to hang besides Hal, Lindsay, Sawchuck, and Steve Eiserman, to name just a few, in honor long, long overdue. I want to thank Waxy for taking the time to speak with us about Red Kelly. For more on Red, check out the book Waxy co-wrote with Red and David Dupuy, The Red Kelly Story. I would also like to thank the great Red Kelly for taking the time, despite his poor health, to offer us just a tiny bit of commentary about his career. He's a real treasure, and I wish him the best. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, back to the hard court, and a look at a team long forgotten, the Cincinnati Royals. Thanks again for tuning in to today's show, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.